Acts 14, beginning to read at verse 8. Hear the word of God. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Amen. Father, we come to you and desire that we would grow in our understanding of your word as well as in our living of it out. And I pray that uh, you would uh, take uh, the weakness of man, that you would quicken the word to the hearts of each one here. And uh, Father, that we would not be merely hearers, but we would also be doers of that word. We love you. And we continue to worship as we uh, interact and respond to your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the things that we noticed last week was that Paul and Barnabas were not quitters. It did not matter uh, what kind of obstacles they came up against. Uh, they continued to follow after uh, God's will for their lives. And we saw in chapter 13 that they got thrown out on their ear toward the end of the chapter. And then in chapter 14, verse 6, they had to flee for their lives from Iconium. But even though they're bucked off, (laughs) they get right back into the saddle. Now, what I want to point out today is that bucking is not the only trick that Satan uh, uses. And it's not the only trick that horses use. Um, I've ridden on horses that try to get you off by brushing your leg against a wall or a tree or barbed wire or, or running right under a low-hanging branch, you know, to swipe you off the back of it. Um, I had one horse that would love to be galloping along and then suddenly jump sideways and probably laugh while you're <laughs> falling off at the side of it. Uh, we had a mule that did none of those things. Once you got a saddle onto that mule, just sweet as could be, But it seemed to humor itself in expanding its chest when you put the saddle on. And you thought the girth was tightened right down tight. But then later on, it would relax its uh, uh, chest and you would go sliding off the saddle. And uh, anyway, the point is that Satan doesn't use all of the same tricks at the same time. 
in one of the sermons on Acts, uh, I was thinking it might be fun to just go through a survey of the book of Acts, all of the different strategies that Satan uses to try to oppose the gospel and to oppose the gospel's messengers. But in this section, we see Satan trying something uh, a little bit different than what he has tried before. He knows uh, now that he's not been successful in getting them to quit with persecution. So now he tries to see if he can undermine their power by giving them celebrity status because he knows if he can appeal to their pride, he can get God himself to oppose them. And now he was not successful in that strategy and so he moves from enthroning them to stoning them. But I want to set the context here by looking first of all at the miracle. Verse 8, And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Now, Luke wants to make sure we understand this is an amazing miracle. There's three things that made this man seem hopeless. He was a cripple. He had been a cripple from the womb. And he had never been able to walk. And so this was no psychosomatic condition. And this was no placebo effect. When This was a true healing that took place. Verse 9 says, this man heard Paul speaking. I want you to notice he didn't just engage in good deeds. This was the problem with the social gospel of the liberals. They wanted to do good things that they had seen other missionaries do, but they left the gospel out. They left the Word of God out. But Paul throughout, and in verses 6 through 7, had been preaching throughout that region. And so the faith that this man has in verse 9 comes from hearing the gospel, not simply from seeing uh, the miracle. So it says, Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Seeing. Uh, it wasn't just the miracle of the healing. It's preceded by a miracle of divine um, insight, you know, divine revelation that was given to him. And so Paul doesn't just willy-nilly do miracles anywhere and everywhere. He's following the Lord's lead just like Jesus uh, followed the lead of the Father and only did those things that the Father said. Verse 10 said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. It's clear that a miracle uh, had been performed. We believe in miracles. There are some people who believe that all miracles passed away with the passing away of the apostles. Uh, I happen to agree with uh, those uh, Puritans and those uh, reformers who said, no, it hasn't passed away. God can perform miracles in any age according to his sovereign good pleasure. Uh, I've demonstrated this to be true in previous sermons, but uh, I think you can see just a tiny hint of it here in this passage. Of verse 18, it indicates Paul's uh, dead. And um, no, not verse 18. It's verse 20. Paul's dead. And it says the disciples gathered around him and he rose up and went into the city. Now, these are not super Christians. These are brand new believers, baby Christians in the Lord. But through their prayers, through their gathering, uh, they, they um, uh, see Paul rising up. Now, having said that, I do want to spend some time dealing with some cautions that need to be stated. And each of the points that are under Roman numeral 1.B are some imbalances that we see in the church of Jesus Christ today with respect to uh, miracles. First thing that I want to uh, uh, say is that it isn't miracles that save people. First of all, this man may indeed have been saved already from hearing the gospel. He definitely has faith already. Uh, notice in verse 7, 
that um, Paul's already been preaching. And verse 9 says, this man heard Paul speaking. So the faith that was present in verse 9 did not come from the healing. Uh, it was uh, not the miracle that produced it, but the gospel. Second reason why I think this passage hints that the miracle did not save people is in verse 3, where Luke says, God brought miracles uh, to witness to the word of His grace. The focus of, of attention God wanted was not on the miracle, but to be listening to the gospel. And so it's the, the gospel uh, that is highlighted, and miracles were never intended to be a substitute for the gospel. Thirdly, the people who get all excited about the miracle are definitely not saved. They end up stoning Paul, right? And so while we do not want to discount the importance of miracles, neither do we want to exaggerate their ability to turn hard hearts into uh, soft hearts. People rarely get offended with miracles. Everybody loves a miracle. You know, if they some miracle in their lives, they're not going to complain. It's the Word of God that they get offended over. And I want you to listen to the dialogue between the rich man and Abraham in Christ's story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, at this point in the story, the rich man's already burning in hell. And he says to Abraham, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So asking that this guy come back from heaven and preach the gospel, be raised from the dead. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And that'd be an incredible miracle to have somebody you know rise from the dead and start preaching the gospel to you and say, man, you better repent or you're going to hell. I know what's happening in the afterlife. That'd be an incredible miracle. And Jesus says, no, they're not going to believe. If they're not already prepared to believe the gospel, they're not going to believe just because a miracle has happened. And there was a great person who rose from the dead, right? And people still didn't believe. It was Jesus. And so don't put too much um, uh, power uh, in, in, in miracles. Miracles have a limited role, but they are no substitute for the gospel. And that conclusion is reinforced if you look at the contrast between verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 ends with the, this is the previous city, but it ends with the signs and wonders that were being done. And verse 4 starts with a but. But the multitude of the city was divided. So miracles don't even guarantee that people are going to listen to the gospel that comes from your lips. They weren't actually listening very carefully to Paul when we were going to look at Paul's words in this chapter uh, here either. A third caution hinted at is given in verses 11 through 13. The people don't deny that a miracle has occurred. They just come to the wrong conclusion. They just interpret it wrongly. And people do that all the time today. A genuine miracle occurs in their life and then they begin to believe everything that the guy who prayed for the miracle is telling them. Or just our own predisposition to the self-deception means that we can interpret things wrongly. We need to always judge miracles and everything surrounding them by the Word of God. It's the standard. A fourth caution is that signs and wonders are not the only evidence of God's power in our lives. If we overemphasize miracles, it's very easy for us to discount and not appreciate the power of God in the ordinary. 
Now, I love the power, the extraordinary power of God and miracles that I've seen in my lives. And I've experienced many miracles. But I also love the power of God that's talked about in verse 15 in the providences of sun and rain and, and you know, how God made the eyeball. It takes incredible power for God to uphold all things by the word of His power. Hebrews describes it. So on the one hand, let's say, yes, praise God when he brings miracles. But let's also praise God for his ordinary presence in our eyeball, the sun, the rain and the other things that he has created. That is an incredible thing. The more you study it in science, the more awestruck you are uh, with how God works. A fifth caution is that signs and wonders were not intended by God to be the ordinary means of keeping people healthy and solvent and out of trouble. Some people, you know, they'll never go to doctors because they expect, okay, it's just, it's got to be miracles or nothing. Uh, the whole point of calling it a wonder is that it's not ordinary. Okay, you can't expect a miracle every day. Now, if God provides a miracle every day, that's wonderful. But God expects us to use the ordinary laws of harvest if we want to increase in wealth, stay fit, and stay out of trouble. Just as, as an example, if we're overweight, we can't pray, say, okay, God, do a miracle instantly, take away 60 pounds, you know. Uh, God's not going to do that because that takes away from our responsibility. The last caution that I want to give with respect to miracles is that they were never intended by God to bypass the need for patience. And you see the need for patience all the way through the book of... Um, of, of Acts, but uh, take a look at verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice that word must. This is not the health and wealth gospel. In fact, if we were to take their logic and apply it to life, We'd come up with all kinds of strange conclusions. You know, if we need a watermelon for lunch, we haven't had time to go to the grocery store, we'd plant a seed and pray for a miracle, an instant watermelon. Now, nobody does that, right? So why do we do exactly the same thing when we are engaged in politics? You know, we need to get a change in politics. And so we pray, Lord, do a miracle. But we're not willing to do the hard work of getting out there and making a difference of salt and light. You see, miracles were never intended by God to make us lazy and to take away from our responsibilities. We can praise God for them, and I believe in them. I think they're very important. They have a role. It's a supportive role, but they're never to make us irresponsible. Now, let's go on to look at the results of this miracle in verses 11 through 13. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Uh, the miracle was immediately interpreted within their worldview. They knew exactly how to interpret this, uh, this event. Uh, their interpretation and their actions may seem a little bit bizarre to us, but you know what? If we were to transport some of the things we consider normal back to their time period, they would think that those are strange as well. And the reason for that is we tend to... Uh, what, we, what we think about life is dictated by our worldview. What we think is normal and what we think is abnormal is dictated by our worldview. 
if you don't feel normal doing the things that the Bible tells you to do, you feel really strange and weird about that, it's because you've embraced some presuppositions from the world system. Because our worldview is what dictates what's going to feel normal, what is not feel normal. And so I want to spend a little bit of time trying to define uh, a worldview before we uh, get back into our text again, just as a little bit of background. A worldview, as a definition, is a network of assumptions. Uh, we call assumptions presuppositions, but it's a network of assumptions that we have in our heads, and these can be conscious they can be unconscious. Sometimes we don't even realize what our presuppositions are. But it's a network of assumptions through which we interpret all of reality. Okay? So if you think of a worldview as being a giant spider web, at the very cent center of that web is going to be your ultimate authority. Now, with Christians, that ultimate authority should be the Bible, but frequently it is not the Bible because we've pulled in assumptions from the world. For example, some Christians, uh, right at the near the heart of uh, their web of assumptions is that peer pressure is their highest authority. And I don't think that that's their highest authority, but they wonder, why do I always give in to peer pressure? It's because what their peers think has become something that is a... Uh, a very high authority to them. And when push comes to shove, they just do what they expected to do. Uh, sometimes it's current scientific opinion, but everyone has one or more authorities at the center of their lives that drives their behavior. And it could be a mixed authority. For these Greeks, it was their religious thinking and training. We're going to be looking at some of the things that drove them. Uh, and it just made it very natural for them to interpret these events the way that they did. Now, for our fun night this past week, we watched a movie that uh, took place, uh, the events took place in China in the 1920s, and it was a fascinating look at a clash of worldviews. There's this Western doctor who uh, goes in, into a way backward uh, city in China where they're trying to stem the plague of cholera. And people are dying by the thousands in this town. And he's sampling the water and he discovers there's cholera in their well. Well, their well was dug right next to the river. He, he covers that over and won't let them. They're really ticked off at him. So they're taking water from the river and he tests that. And there's cholera in the river as well. And he tells them, you need to get your water from upstream. Well, they just don't want to do that. And he's also trying to get them to quit burying their dead right at the water's edge because, you know, the cholera is seeping from the carcasses into the water and then they're drinking that water. Well, he, he just does have not have any success because for the Chinese there, their cholera had nothing whatsoever to do with germs. It had everything to do with spirits. And it was imperative that they bury their dead right at the edge of the water so as to appease the spirits. So it didn't matter what they did. Now, what he said, they just could not be disabused of the fact. Now, here's the thing. They're all looking at the same facts, but they're interpreting the facts from totally different vantage points. Their worldview dictated what the outcome of their interpretation of those facts uh, would be. It was a very fascinating movie. In fact, uh, there were some Chinese who had mixed worldviews. They had adopted some things from the West and some things from their Eastern culture, and it put them in tension. Uh, they were very inconsistent in their reactions. Well, there was a lot of inconsistency in the Christian church because we have adopted things 
that look normal, what is normal from the world. And you can see it in entertainment, in education, in sports, in modesty, in a whole host of areas. Let me just give you an example. Many Christians never stop to think about the world view that shapes a medical opinion. If the doctor tells them to do something, it's just gospel truth. They never think to, to question uh, how that doctor came to that conclusion. Now, often that works out just great. It's no problem. Sometimes it does not. When I was growing up, most of my friends had had their tonsils taken out when they were very young, not because they had bad tonsils, but because the doctor had bought into the evolutionary uh, framework that says that our tonsils are vestigial organs that are useless. They're going to cause problems in the future. Might as well get them out young. And so there's millions of people who had their tonsils, perfectly good tonsils, being taken out. Why? Because they had never questioned their authorities' assumptions. Okay, it was a worldview that was affecting uh, that uh, that uh, that thought. On the other hand, some Christians don't have medical science as their unthinking authority. Instead, they automatically believe everything their chiropractor says or their alternative medicine doctor says, and they never stop to think of the Eastern philosophies that have factored into those medical opinions. In fact, some of the diets even, like they, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the, uh, it's a blood type diet. Depending on your blood type, you have to eat different foods. Read the book on that and you will see it is rife with evolutionary assumptions. And there's so many ways in which we unquestioningly look at an authority because of what? They've had success and here it's a pragmatic approach. Uh, a pragmatic approach to life. And we need to be very, very careful. I'm not saying there aren't good things from both approaches, okay? Everybody can accidentally stumble on the truth, right? So there are going to be good things from both approaches, but my point is nothing in life is neutral. We cannot just blindly look to authorities without checking that authority against the ultimate authority, which is the Word of God. Ultimately, there are only two worldviews, Christian and non-Christian. And so we ought not to be surprised when we're doing things that the Bible considers normal and all your neighbors think you're a nut. There's something weird about these Christian guys here that are in our neighborhood. You ought not to be surprised by that because your worldview will determine what you think is normal. Now, I thought it was important that we get that out of the way. We define that before we dive into Roman numeral points two and three uh, because these people were doing what was quite natural to their worldview. I think Paul's interaction with these pagans can give us some insights as to how we can interact in the culture wars that are go on, going on in America. Now, there are uh, some differences between their culture and ours. For example, America is much more individualistic uh, than their culture was, much more individualistic. Uh, it would be very hard to get Americans just out there on the street to spontaneously begin to start chanting, uh, you know, what they're chanting here, we'd feel a little bit uncomfortable. Americans tend to be a bit shy with two notable exceptions, sports events and rock concerts, you know. <laughs> and uh, sometimes political events can be that way. Certainly with Hitler, uh, you know, the political events were very much a, a captivating thing like that. But it's amazing how rock concerts can have the whole crowd shouting the same thing and engaging in sometimes rather strange behavior as a cohesive unit 
And then as soon as they depart, they go back to their individualistic ways of doing things. Anyway, imagine this as being a huge rock concert where everybody's shouting with excitement to their celebrities. Verse 11 says, they raised their voices saying... Now, the idea is there was a united chorus chanting their approval to their newfound heroes. No doubt the priest of verse 13 is uh, taking advantage of this just like a skillful rock concert manager. Uh, he's putting ceremony and different things together to make sure that he gets it to their maximum financial advantage. He's not going to let this opportunity slip by. And it doesn't matter what the apostles say, what they do in verses 14 through 17, the crowds will not be disabused of the fact that these two men are great and greatly to be praised. Okay? Even with the negative verses, the words in verse uh, 18, with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So it's a very emotionally charged atmosphere that you could liken to Beatlemania. Beatlemania. A Journal of American Sociological Society speaks of these things as rituals of solidarity. Now, because the worldview has shifted and changed in America, the, some of the things, some of the pagan rituals now seem normal, even to Christians in Christian rock concerts, that 100 years ago would have been considered to be absolutely revolting. Okay? Um, Body surfing, um, screaming yourself hoarse, you know, at rock concerts. Uh, even my kids have been involved in screaming themselves hoarse. Okay, so we're, we're preaching even to my family here this morning. But I want you to think about this. I'm not saying dogmatically here, but I want you to have open minds to thinking about why is it that our worldview now makes things seem normal that a hundred years ago would have been thought to be bizarre. Why is that? I just want you to think about that uh, a, a little bit. Don't ask the, the question, are these actions okay? Okay, the Bible doesn't speak about those actions, so they're okay. Don't just think about the action. Ask yourself, why is the world, is the worldview that makes it seem normal itself a, a biblical worldview? You've got to challenge your own presuppositions, which is what the worldview is all about. So that's what we're going to be looking at. A second area in the clash of worldviews could be seen in verse 11, where they say, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, Paul and Barnabas are absolutely horrified by this. Anything even remotely approaching deification was considered to be blasphemy. It just sickened them. But the, for the Laconians... That's just the most natural thing in the world. didn't bother them at all. It's a natural outflow of their worldview. Verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, why would they assume that, that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul Hermes? Commentators have said, well, they had pictures of both of those gods all over the place. So there may have been even a facial similarity between the two. Uh, they, uh, Zeus was white-haired, very... Um, uh, you know, imposing figure, and they assumed that maybe Barnabas looked like that. And Hermes was the god of speech because Paul's the guy who's usually on the forefront speaking. They assumed he was that. But that still doesn't answer the question. Why did they assume these two are gods? That just doesn't seem very rational. Well, let me give you a little bit of background to the uh, Greek worldview. According to Greek mythology, Zeus and Hermes visited Lystra one time disguised as humans, visitors, 
And they went to 1,000 homes and none of the homes invited them in for, for dinner until finally they came to the home of a couple by the name of Philemon and Baucus who welcomed them into their home, fed them. Even though they were so poor, they hardly had enough food for themselves. And according to this legend, Zeus rewarded the couple by converting their home into a beautiful temple. And then when they died, changing their, uh, the, the, the couple into two trees with intertwining uh, branches. And then he toasted all of the rest of the thousand, all, you know, destroyed all the homes and turned the whole place into a swamp. Uh, but of course, the local temple claims to be the one built by Zeus. And part of their lore is that they're expecting Zeus and Hermes to come back. And part of their lore was, you better be hospitable to them when they come back. We don't want to have this repeated over again. Now, the miracle itself was such a phenomenal miracle, they couldn't attribute it to some of the miracles that they had seen happening with their demon gods, their lesser deities. They said, man, this must have come from the big boys themselves. This has got to be Zeus and Hermes. So that's what's going on in their thinking here. Now, the main point I was making is that they were deifying these men. Modern Americans deify their rock stars. And occasionally will deify their political figures and some historical figures. And boy, you try to point out any defects in their gods and they will, you're going to be dead meat. <laughs> I've seen this happen because I've pointed out the defects and boy, they come all over me. They get unglued. But let's just think of the way that rock stars are treated. When I have watched pictures of groupies going crazy over a singer, I have thought to myself, a hundred years ago, that would have been considered blasphemy even by non-Christians. And the reason for that is non-Christians a hundred years ago, for the most part, had borrowed presuppositions from the Christian worldview and their worldview, even though they weren't Christians, their worldview was predominantly a Christian worldview. They would have considered that uh, absolutely horrible. Now, I admit, very few people today will say that they're treating the rock star as guards. There have been some groupies who have said so. I've got about two dozen quotes to that effect. And there's a few uh, rock stars who have said, yeah, I am a god, and I like the worship that I'm getting. Not very many. A rocker, Frank Zappa, died in 1993. He may be one example. He said, we have our own worshipers who are called groupies. Girls will give their bodies to musicians as you would give a sacrifice to a god. But usually... People don't say that their rocker is a god. Instead, they treat them like a god through loyalty and patronage and study and preoccupation. As one uh, said rather tongue-in-cheek, first of all, you must educate yourself in every minute detail concerning what I do and do not like. You know, my favorite color, restaurant, animal, my sign, my preferred top-notch clothing designer, my pet peeves, turn-ons and turn-offs. You can do this by reading any of the celebrity-centered, teeny-bopper magazines around. If all else fails, just look for stuff with a huge picture of me plastered to it, looking perfectly airbrushed and flawless. I'm sure you'll be able to ingest excessive amounts of me and everything pertaining to me. And me is capitalized there. In case you haven't figured it out yet, this isn't about you having a hobby or even a healthy interest in someone well-known and admired. And his point was, wow, they're saying things about me that are worthy of a God, even though they know that I am not a God. Another interesting parallel is that Paul and Barnabas are treated as celebrities not based on their character. These guys didn't know Paul and Barnabas. They could have been perverts or good. They could have had a low IQ, high IQ. They don't care. They don't care. They are interested in performance and excitement. 
And they don't want you to question the defects of these people any more than modern Americans want you to question the defects of their political gods. And then, of course, there's the worship of verse 13. Then the priest of Zeus, he's going to be the manager of this event, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And these multitudes fit into the normal frenzied adoration of that time that was expected. Despite the attempts of Paul and Barnabas to stop them, the crowds do what is normal. Verse 18 shows they really weren't listening. Crowds hear what they want to hear. They're there for the experience. And verse 18 says, And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude from sacrificing to them. Not even rock stars can control their crowds at all times. Uh, but I don't think it is a stretch to say that both rock concerts and political conventions can stir up crowds to, at least on occasion, do what approximates worship. And I tell you, some of the political concert, uh, uh, conventions that I've been to, it, to me, seem blasphemous. It seems like worship. It seems like worship to me. But um, the high degree of devotion that people give to modern uh, figures, whether they're Christian figures or non-Christian figures, I think would have Paul and Barnabas running in their midst with horror trying to stop it. Uh, one fan of the Backstreet Boys is quoted in People magazine as saying, I love Nick, for Nick I'll die. If God says die and let Nick live, I'll do that. A fan of Britney Spears is quoted as saying, I'm obsessed. I'd do anything for her. I live for Britney Spears. You don't understand. I live for Britney Spears. I live for her. Like, my life wouldn't be complete without her. Uh, Grateful Dead concerts were described as, quote, a place to worship uh, by more than one magazine, actually. <coughs> Gary Greenberg paid a Gary Garcia. The band was the high priest, the audience, the congregation, the songs, the liturgy, and the dancing, the prayer. Another author said, The dead's legendary live concerts bear uncanny resemblance to religious festivals. Uh, Garcia himself said, On a certain level, it's a religion to me. Uh, Judy Mowat, one of uh, Bob Marley's backup singers, says, It was a crusade. It was a mission. We were like sentinels, like lights. On tour, the shows were like church. There were mixed emotions in the audience. You see people literally crying, people in a frenzy, on a spiritual high. These concerts were powerful and highly spiritual. There was a power that pulled you there. It was a clean feeling. For months and maybe years, it stays with you. Now, the reason I'm bringing up all of those things, I know you guys don't listen to secular rock um, concerts, but the reason I bring, you, uh, bring that up is I want you to evaluate why you do the things that you do in Christian rock concerts. Okay, Many of the practices are taken right out of the pagan concerts. Just because it feels normal does not mean that it is right. Why is it that Christian rock artists all the time are having to warn their audience, please don't worship us, worship God? It's because they know it's happening all the time. In fact, the same forms of worship from the pagan concerts are being offered and those are not being dismissed by the rock artists. And so they're constantly having to warn the people. None of this is neutral and we need to evaluate why is it that our worldview now is making normal, making us feel normal about what would never have felt normal a hundred years ago. Now, maybe I'm just old-fashioned. That could be. And you could just discount all of this. 
But you need to ask, would Paul and Barnabas be running even in the midst of the Christian rock concerts and saying, this is blasphemy, fellows. You ought not to be doing this. Just think about it. We've looked at the miracle. (coughs) We've looked at the misunderstanding. Now, let's look next at the moxie with which Paul and Barnabas confronted the pagan worldview head on. Now, the dictionary defines moxie as courage and boldness mixed with inventiveness. And the boldness can be seen in their willingness to run amongst that, uh, that, that crowd and try to, uh, to stop them and shout them down. If you've ever studied anything about crowd control, you know that's not a cool thing to do. <laughs> uh, rock artists never run around in the midst of their crowd. They know they may never get out again. Uh, you just don't do that. But I think the most bold thing is their words. Paul and Barnabas are obviously very upset with the crowd and they don't try to hide it. Verses 14 through 15 says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? To tear your clothes is to show the highest form of sadness and disapproval that they could give. This was not a mild disagreement. This was a bold rebuke. Now, the inventiveness comes from the fact that they're taking advantage of the attention of the crowds in order to preach the gospel, in order to advance the cause of the kingdom. And I love the moxie of these men, and I think it's one of the reasons why their lives counted and were exciting and were worth living. Uh, Ted Turner once spoke about the boringness of life. He said, life is like a B-grade movie. You don't want to leave in the middle of it, but you don't want to see it again either. And that's the way most Christian lives are. They're B-grade movies that just have no excitement for the cause of Christ. But we don't want our lives to be B-grade movies. We want every moment to count. And if that's going to happen, it is imperative that we live our lives for God with a consistent worldview. Now, I want you to notice the all-out war of worldviews. I've already mentioned the first one. Uh, Paul and Barnabas don't take a who-cares attitude toward idolatry. They tore their clothes. Idolatry was extremely offensive to them, even though they were the ones being idolized. And unless you understand how hateful idolatry is, you're not going to have what it takes to resist idolatry when you're the one who's the idol. And let me tell you, it's very easy to become idols. Very easy. Parents can become idols for their children. Put up on a uh, put up on a, on a pedestal, and we can reinforce that by never admitting our mistakes to them, uh, never exposing our sin, our limitations, pretending to be perfect, putting on a facade. But we can dethrone ourselves, on the other hand, in a number of ways. We can honestly discuss with our children the mistakes that we have made in bringing them up, and tell them, "Hey, kids, these are things I think you ought not to do when you're a parent." and uh, the mistakes we've made in homeschooling. And we can for sure uh, ask for their forgiveness when we have sinned against them. That models to them humility. Son, I have sinned wickedly against you and against God. Please forgive me for what I said. This is just not right. It is modeling to them. Uh, For sure, telling them that we're not the highest authority, that God is. If we're a doctor or we're some other expert, we can dethrone ourselves by admitting to our clients sometimes, I just don't know. I don't have all of the answers. But verse 14 shows that Paul and Barnabas see idolatry as very, very grievous. And if you want to gain a a picture of the idolatry and the various idols that exist in our land, I would strongly recommend that you buy the book, 
Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. Probably the best critique of the American culture uh, that I have read. The second thing that Paul does to show the cre- uh, is to show the creator-creature distinction. Verse 15, we also are men with the same nature as you. They are saying God is God and we are not. There is a vast difference between God and us. And our worldview can help us to see the limitations of creatures. If we see the state as being the final authority in all legal issues, we've bought into a pagan worldview. We're failing to see the creator-creature distinction because politicians have the same nature that we do. They make the same mistakes that we do. How in the world could we deify the state? And yet many Christians do. If we bristle at the suggestion that somebody has made that we could be mistaken, we're momentarily lapsing into a failure to recognize, yeah, we're, we're mere flesh. We're, we've got this big gap between us and God. Now, I tried uh, for years to uh, resist the creator-creature distinction in my life because I hated the fact that I had to sleep so much. And so I kept pushing back and pushing back to the point where when I was in college, I was just sleeping four hours a night. And I eventually had a health crash where God was basically giving me a wake-up call and saying, you, son, are mere flesh, and you better get over it and start sleeping like I commanded you to sleep and stop trying to escape from your creaturely limits. Because we are limited, not unlimited. We are finite, not infinite. We are dependent, not independent. And we've got to get that into our heads and thinking because the world out there does not think that way. Don't treat your spouse as a love God. They're going to fail you. Why? Because they've got the same flesh that you do. And so you've got to cover them with grace when they fail you. The third thing that Paul's worldview demands is antithesis. Now, antithesis, as we've seen in the past, is a clear-cut demarcation between right and wrong, good and evil, blessings and curses. Now, that goes so contrary to our culture, which is pluralistic. Our culture just loves the idea that everything's okay and gray and mushy. They don't like antithesis. Uh, It makes them uncomfortable. And we, because we have bought into the worldview of our culture, we get uncomfortable with the kinds of things that Paul uh, was saying in this chapter. Now, we see two things in this tiny message that show antithesis. First is the call to repentance. He told them their purpose was to, quote, preach to you that you should turn, there's the repentance, from these useless things. There's the hard truth of what's good and bad, uh, what is helpful and what is useless. And again, too many Christians do not uh, like that. Uh, They've adopted pluralism, but without antithesis being clearly articulated, the covenant's going to be destroyed and we're going to repeat the cycles that happened in the book of Judges and come under God's judgment. There is no area of life where God's boundaries or antithesis should not be seen. Fourth thing that Paul brings to the front in this culture war is the doctrine of creation. Verse 15 again. To the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. None of them had evolved. See, it's not as if God just created the beginning, the egg, as in the case of some ancient cultures, or the protozoa. Uh, And then after that, he superintends the uh, the evolution. No, he says, everything in heaven, earth, and the sea, everything as it exists right now was created by God. And so this is a front-on confrontation with the evolutionary views that the Greeks had. 
They were evolutionists back then as well. We have much more sophisticated evolution. But this is the sad thing. The church of today is not willing to confront these issues. Instead, we've adopted the evolutionary thinking of the world and so Christians have come up all, with all kinds of strange, bizarre interpretations of Genesis chapter 1, trying to put billions of years uh, into that chapter. We've got to restore the kind of theology that can confront and successfully do, throw, do so in the culture wars. Now, in this case, it wasn't real successful because they end up getting killed. But uh, it's this kind of thing that can enable true success. The next area of conflict was Paul's mentioning of the living God as opposed to the useless things they were doing. And the fact that all things originated from God stands in total contrast to the Greek thinking where each little God has his small sphere of jurisdiction and his small sphere of influence. But if all things come from the one living God, that means that God has authority over everything. Now, we as Christians, I think many times, like to pigeonhole and put God into certain areas, church and family, that's fine, but let's keep God out of, uh, out of culture, let's keep God out of politics. The moment we have done that, we have assumed polytheism rather than the one true God who has authority over every area of life. And so, to these polytheists, he affirms monotheism. The next doctrine that Paul brings up is the doctrine of law and sin. Verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now, walking in their own ways is the rebellion. He's just told them they need to repent of. And the fact that God allowed the nations in the past to wander does not endorse their wandering. It's just that they were not chosen and restored to Him as Israel was. And then finally comes the doctrine of providence. Paul indicates that they were without excuse because it's clear. God is involved in every detail of life. Verse 17. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, Paul did not say everything that could be said. He was rushed. He was taken off guard. Boy, he just had a small moment of time to get this message out. And yet, when you think about it, it is, in fact, when you look at all of the doctrines I've just outlined in your, in your bulletin there, it is absolutely remarkable that Paul, without being able to think, was able to get so many things that stood in contrast to that pagan culture. Absolutely remarkable. But this is the beautiful thing about worldviews. It enables us to reason, to process, to come to conclusions instantaneously. We don't have to go through all of the deductive reasoning. It happens instantaneously because of our worldview. So that means if you've developed a consistently clear Christian worldview, it's automatically going to produce speech, behavior that is consistent with and has the savor of that uh, biblical worldview with it. That's why Romans 12 says, and, uh, and, and Scott began with, you know, the importance of our minds. We've got to be transformed through the renewing of our minds, don't we? Our minds are so important. Worldviews are powerful. And I'm just staggered at how easily all of these things just came off of his lips. Why? Because he had a clearly developed worldview. But these uh, pagans reject what he has to say, or a better way of uh, maybe wording it is they filter out. They filter um, what he had to say through the filters of their worldview. And that's another function that worldviews have. They automatically filter out the distracting information that you consider to be irrelevant or contrary to what you believe. Okay, it just filters it out. 
But uh, this is also a very frustrating part of worldviews that we've got to come to grips with. If all you're arguing about is facts, you're going to get yourself into frustration because the guy that you're debating with is just not going to be convinced. You keep throwing more and more and more and more facts and you say, what is wrong with this guy? He's retarded. He can't see all of the facts that I'm bringing. No, he's filtering it through his worldview. And it's only when there's an overwhelming number of facts that he begins to realize, I've got to have a paradigm shift because I can't account for all of these facts. Or, better yet, when you attack the presuppositions themselves that he begins to see, now wait a shake. I'm not interpreting this stuff the way that I should be interpreting this stuff. So it's almost as if they're not listening in verse 18. It says, with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. They're even more pumped. They hear about the blessings of God and they filter out all of the rest. But that's the way worldviews affect us. It's impossible to think without some filters in place. It's one of the limitations of our finite nature. We can't analyze every fact in the universe. And so every human has a paradigm through which he filters and interprets data. So the key is, make sure your filters are biblical ones. Make sure your presuppositions are biblical ones. Don't endlessly argue about the facts. Challenge the assumptions by which they're interpreting it. Now, I've put down the fourth um, M as being mutability. They're so fickle. In verse 18, they adore Paul and Barnabas. In verse 19, they kill them. You can't put your trust in crowds. They're fickle. They're so easily manipulated. But you know what? Crowds turn ugly on celebrities when the celebrities don't do what they want them to do. And I think sports uh, heroes have found that to be the case. One day they're a hero and the next day they're a bum because they lost the football game for them. Uh, in verse 19, they turn ugly. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. You know, it is absolutely amazing the persistence with which these Jews hound Paul. They started persecuting him in Antioch, drove him out of Antioch. He, they follow him to Iconium and get him out of there. They follow him from Iconium to Lystra. They're just a tiny minority, but all the way through the book of Acts, they play havoc with Paul. And this is yet another feature of worldviews. They can make us totally blind to the evidence. And this is one of the reasons why I like Answers in Genesis so well is because they're not just endlessly shooting at the issues that are up there. They're pointing their cannons down at the foundations. They're pointing their cannons at the presuppositions. And uh, we need to make sure that we are doing the same and making sure we evaluate our own foundations, our own presuppositions. Are they biblical? Everything needs to be held captive to the Word of God. We're not told what they say to the Gentiles to get them upset. And what's remarkable to me is Jews weren't exactly popular themselves. So what are they doing to get the Christians in trouble? Whether they told lies or told the truth, we're not, we're not sure. But it got the Gentiles angry enough, they stoned them. And so they've moved from all-out worship of Paul and Barnabas to all-out hatred. If your longing is to receive the approval of men, forget it. It will be short-lived. It will let you down. The only approval you should be striving for is the approval of Almighty God. Now I want to end with one more M from this chapter. It's metal. Metal refers to spirit, courage, strength of character. We've already seen it in the bold way that he confronts them in the crowd. Two more examples here, though. The disciples in verse 20 show metal when they gather around the guy who's just been stoned. It says in verse 20, 
However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. Now, that takes some courage because they could be the next ones who are being stoned. And God can give you the same courage and boldness he gave them so that they did not give up. They did not forsake the faith. Uh, when I was a, a young kid, I used to worry about this. Worry, man, if I was tortured, especially that torture, ooh, would I give up the faith? And those things would be going through my head. And my parents told me, you know, Phil, that's, that's so distant. That's theoretical. God will give you the boldness and the courage at that time to be able to face that torture. He's not going to give it to you now. Put that out of your mind. You know, worry about today. Don't worry about tomorrow. And He can give that courage. And then the next example of metal is in the rest of the text. It says of Paul, he rose up and went into the city. Now, this may be the most amazing part of the whole story. Now, the other parts are amazing too. The miracle's amazing. The fact that they celebrate him as gods, that's amazing. Uh, their stoning is amazing. But I think this is absolutely amazing that he's just been stoned, drug outside the city. He's healed. He gets up. He walks right back into the city that stones him. Now, the next day he goes on to Derby, but he doesn't leave his medal behind because if you look, glance at verse 21, you'll see that he goes back to the previous three cities, each of which he has been persecuted in and solidifies the churches there. And so I want to conclude this message by encouraging you not to be enamored by the enthroning that people want to give you or be fearful of the stonings that crowds will sometimes dish out. Instead, I want your focus to be on the Lord and your highest authority, that central authority, to be the Word of God. Constantly throwing out unbiblical presuppositions as the Spirit brings those to mind and strengthening your worldview through reading, through study, so that you can be stable like Paul. Let me tell you something. If you begin to develop a consistently biblical worldview, yes, there will be confrontation, but... Your life is going to have so much meaning and purpose and glory. You're going to be filled with joy, with hope. You're going to have something to live for. You're not going to be a B-rated movie. You're going to be having a life that is absolutely thrilling. And it's guaranteed you will make a difference. Make it so, Lord. Amen. Father, thank you for your word and the challenge that it is into our lives. And I pray that each one of us would evaluate every aspect of our worldview. This has been kind of a, a tough, heady uh, subject to be addressing. And I just pray, though, Lord, that it would be seed that Satan would not snatch out of the hearts, but that it would grow up and bear fruit to your honor. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.